0: uh a uh it, it when a na'vi the difference between a Navi and a rabbi or a navi and a teacher is that a teacher is teaching you ideas or knowledge and isn't asking you isn't commending you to do anything a Navi commends you to do something based upon authority that he has beyond just the ideas he's teaching you because if it's just the ideas he's teaching you, you can apply them to your own life. If they're true, you're going to apply them. If they're not true, you don't think they're true, you're not going to apply them. But if he, in addition to teaching you something true, also says that you have to go and do X, Y, and Z, so now he's already uh, imposing authority. So where does he get the authority to do that and tell you to take certain actions, especially if those actions are more than or less than or different than what the Torah normally requires you to do? So that's why he needs to prove that he's in a V, for you to rely on him for uh for practical uh authority you right. see what i'm saying uh,
1: the, important part, the important part about that is that he's doing so as an individual versus in the normal process it'll be by by consensus of the sun and right you have a collection of money that decide something you never need to prove that they are right because they're collective authority and thinking about an idea has the gives them the authority once they
0: once they have it um they, they represent the people hmm, versus yeah. the and he's, he's it'll be like, like have deal yeah like la have deal like the congress can pass legislation and they don't have to prove that they have the right to pass legislation
1: exactly
0: right so so, so if, if that... the the authority
1: versus the has to have the Extenuating
0: circumstances, some some reason to be able to say that they have the arguments is the right. So the point is, first of all, first of all, first of all, insofar as uh, knowledge of Tawah's concerns, um, knowledge of Tawa is its own credential, meaning you don't you don't need an extraneous Proof that you know either you have the knowledge or you don't have it. It's like if you're a researcher in a field and you have knowledge of the field, that knowledge is what qualifies you to speak about the field. Nobody expects you to do magic to show that you uh, know the know the field, right? Um, but uh, but you're not giving anybody any instructions on what to do. So a person who's a licensed physician, let's say. Like, usually if you're in the helping professions, if you're teaching or involved in the theoretical side, you don't need a license. But if you're involved in the practical side of telling people what therapies they should do or uh, what medicines they should take, so then you need a license for that. That says that you are, uh, you know, that you have the authority to make those decisions. Right? So in the area of alakha a person who has knowledge, really the knowledge is, is sufficient in its own right, if he wants to teach you or give you instruction or say his opinion about certain things. If they have an authority, they expect you to adhere to it. So that's a different story. If they have some position or title that gives them the right to tell you what to do or not. A Navi has the right to tell you what to do. If he's a verified, verified Navi, then it's one of the mitzvot of the Torah, a love tishma'un, that you have to listen to him. But that's only, uh, that's only true of a verified Navi. If the guy wants to come and teach you, it's like the same thing as a Zaken Mamre, a guy who just wants to come and teach a different theory of halachad and what the beddin Gadol teaches. He's welcome to teach whatever he wants in his classroom. He's not telling you to do anything. Right? It's the authority piece that becomes complicated. That's why I'm saying when Moshe Rabbeinu comes and says... Here's what God revealed to me about his nature or his ways or his name. That's fine. Nobody's going to require a sign for you to prove that. That's fine. But you're telling me, go do this. Go ask for that. Go follow me and trust me on a course of action. That's a whole different story. You know what I'm saying? That's a whole different story. So To trust you, I need some basis to trust you.
2: Right. Yeah, it's a stretch to understand a lot of methodologies that uh, not it wasn't a physical sign or it wasn't some sort of you know, visual display. He's obviously teaching him modes of leadership, and whatever those were, and can I cannot discuss further. But if it does, if this this way of leading, this way of uh, being a leader, that doesn't prove effective, they don't listen to it this way. Then they don't listen to it the second.
0: It could be. I think definitely tr- it's true in general that, um, that the model of leadership of the great people of the Torah is fundamentally different from the model of leadership of the uh, of the other nations that we never see the leader as being some kind of a superhero uh, mm-hmm. um, or anything like that, but always as a, uh, especially a Navi, as a vehicle of teaching the wisdom of God to the people and really the Melech is Hashem, like Shmuel says, you know, Malkechem. You know, that's, that's the, the great, the, the, the chidush of the uh, of the biblical model of leadership is kechem Malkechem. And that, that the Navi's job is that you should understand the Ratzon of Hashem so that you can live in accordance with his wisdom as a free exercise of your choice, but that, uh, but but not that there's any special powers. You know, nobody in the Torah has any special powers. It's all who if if Aaron shows Moshe Rabbeinu that he erred in a certain halakha then the discussion is over. It's uh, it's it's not. Uh, well, I'm Moshe Rabbeinu and therefore I'm right. You know, there's there's no such there's no such thing as that. There's no such thing as that in the Gemara either. It, uh, you know the uh, the the rabbis it's a it's a democratic process in the sense that um, whoever whoever's argument uh, wins carries the discussion is the it, that's it there's no further discussion after that there's no well I'm older I'm smarter than you I'm greater than you I'm richer than you I'm anything else there, that, that never becomes a part of the caseement so uh, Moshe Rabin comes purely as a, he's mivatil himself, and you see his anav mikol adam, which is critical to the to the position that he's in. And he's simply coming as a representative of God to bring the people closer to God. And it's going to be through God that they're redeemed, not through Moshe Rabbein. That's, that's the key thing. Now, if we go, everyone wants to get to the story about the weird brit milah thing, right? So let's go further so we can get to that. Eh? Yeah. So we start from she she. I mean, wait
3: wait Robert. So how is the decision made at the end of the day? It, it, it ends up either someone being very humble, because like, I two people are arguing, right? So one person has the more the other person's argument is stronger. And if that person's eyes, they both have an equal. How, how is their conclusion? The conclusion ends up being the what the people decide, right? So,
0: what, what in what case?
3: In, in all cases. You know, in, is, let's say the
0: discussion of the Gemara. Right. two different opinions. <laughs> and and, and, and uh, it, it's just based on the argument, right?
3: Right, hopefully, yeah. And then, and then there's consensus that's built, where there's, there's a, a vote and the majority decide. Like, how, how Right, the, so, <clears>
0: how I mean, it's not just the majority of you know? any uh, any person off the street. Oh, no. It's not like American oh, no. democracy.
3: okay, so the, the vehicle of the the will
0: of the people not really uh, th- there is an idea like that i'll give you an example of that but in general we trust the we trust the majority of the chachamim not the majority of the people the people don't necessarily know anything that's 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 the drawback of uh, of pure democracy in a pure democracy uh, the guy who has an iq of 70 and albert einstein both have one vote you know, and so uh, it's kind of ridiculous, like uh, because you don't have to have any um, any any special knowledge or intelligence to qualify to have an opinion. Um, and in the framework of any kind of chokma, if you have a if if they're trying to determine some scientific matter, first of all, scientific issues have an objective reality. So no matter what the consensus opinion is, there could be a reality that neither of the opinions is right. That's certainly true, but within science, if there is a dominant school of thought, let's say in a scientific discipline or in something which is really based on objective knowledge, we assume we give benefit of the doubt to the majority, uh, to the majority uh, view, not because the majority view determines the reality, but because it's most likely that if most scholars see things a certain way, that that's the, mo- that's the educated view of the matter. Um. So
3: it's not. It, it's not enough for a to sit around and say euphoria. This is the right thing to do, right. and then everyone has to comply. Like if you don't have the, the, the complying, you're you're sitting around, you know, hypothesizing what the best course of action is. Right doesn't mean anything because the people aren't willing to, to comply. So,
0: so in a in a situation where you had a state that was governed by halacha. And the Chachamim were the were the law, the you know the ones who were the legislators or the interpreters of the law. So then that would come with an authority to actually um, set the policy for the community. In a situation, there is an idea like what you're thinking in the concept of Beit Shammai and Beit because it says that Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, Beit Shama'in, they were actually smarter, meaning in terms of the theory, probably they were right most of the time, whatever positions they had, because uh, they were sharper than Beit Tilel intellectually. Why does the Halakha follow them, uh, Beit Tilel then, if the, if the uh, Beit Shammai was smarter? Oh, because Beit Shammai was more distant from the people, and Beit Tilel, they were humble, and everybody loved them, and they were nice, and they were friendly, so therefore the Halakha followed Beit Tilel. Like, what does that have to do with anything? Why is the Beit Tzilel being nice and, and humble and friendly have anything to do with halacha? The answer is because the people have to learn from them. Meaning the way that they're gonna go is gonna depend upon to a certain extent on uh, which chachamim are accessible to the people and uh, and are the ones that the people will follow. In other words, when we consider, look, look this way, when we consider what halakha to follow, it's not just a question about a particular halakha. It's a question about who are our rabbis? Who are, our, who are the ones we're following? And so if you have one group of rabbis that might be super intellectually smart, but are not accessible, are not, um, are not connected to the people, are not beloved by the people, let's say. So then you're not gonna have, choosing that group of intellectuals as your rabbis is, not going to be a benefit to the am in general because they're not going to have a kesher with them. They're, that's a factor too. You want the halakha to be uh, formulated in a way that connects uh, teachers to students also. And that's the that's the reason why Beit Tilel is chosen because Beit Tilel might not be the smartest but they were the ones who were the most able to exert a positive influence in the development of the nation more so than Beit Shammai. So by the halakha following them, that means they become the ones people turn to. They become the ones people interface with. And that, that's, the, uh, that's the benefit of it. So there's a definite value to that. Just like it says, you know, when it talks about Moshe Rabbeinu versus Aaron, it says uh, when Moshe Rabbeinu died, the people mourned for him, of course. But when, 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 uh, when Aaron died, everybody loved him. Right? And because he was Rodev Shalom, shalom, shalom he was a personality that inter- interacted with the people and tried to connect with them and tried to strengthen them and unify them. That character, what made him a person that they were going to go to, if you have somebody like that, then you have a halachic question, who are you going to go to? You're going to go to him. You're not going to go to Moshe Rabbeinu, who's kind of a uh, more aloof, distant personality. You're going to go to Aaron. And that's why you see, like, when, for example, uh, when they come about Korban Pesach, it says that they came to Moshe and Aaron and the Ziknei Israel. And now um, you remember what the Pasuk is. In Baalot Techa. also, like you we were before there, right? One second. Is it there, or is it uh, or is it um, no, it's, uh, it's the Benotz Lofchad that they did. One second. So they, when they come to, uh, to Moshe Rabbeinu in uh, Parashat Pinchas or Matot actually so it says that they come to Moshe and Aaron, okay, I want to just find the exact language of the Pasuk to show you that that's kind of what it's talking about there, I think. Yeah. Um, how come I can't find it all of a sudden? Oh, I was right. It was Parsha Pinchas, it wasn't Matot, that's why. Okay. So the right, so it says, They came lifne moshe, vilifne elazar akoin, velifne anisim vecholaida. So rashi asks, why would they uh, you know if, if moshe is there, why are they talking to Elazar? Right. If Elazar doesn't, you know, why do they have to bring Elazar and the Nesim and all that? But because Moshe Rabbeinu was a distant figure, he wasn't approachable necessarily when it came to a halachic question. He wasn't approachable. So they went to an approachable rabbi. And it's important to have teachers who are approachable because that allows the people to have uh, more of a connection and to grow. And that why, that's what Aaron's role really was, as the mouthpiece of Moshe Rabbeinu, even dealing with the people, you know? It's like a lot of yeshivot will have like a Rosh Yeshiva, who is this very great Talmud Chacham, and then they have like a guy who like connects with the students, like the mashkiach of the students, or whatever they call him. His role is more to be like a, a buddy with the students, but not really, but he's more on their level, and he interacts with them, does activities, gets to know them personally. It's like a different aspect of the... Of the development process, and it's important. So, you know, it's important to uh, to have that. Um, okay, so back to the uh, back to the the story. So, so Moshe Rabbeinu finally is told, fine. And and so we said, I think it was a really important chidush that you made, Ariel, about the Avodah Zarah piece that um, that Moshe Rabbeinu's chet that causes the uh, vayichar af Hashem, Bemosheh, that the Rambam said that Vayicha Hashem Be Moshe is always with Abu Dazorah. And what would what Chet of Abu Dazorah could Moshe Rabbeinu possibly have done? That he separated the idea of the social, political, and rhetorical framework from the, from the divine framework. He said, I operate in the divine framework, send somebody else for the social, political framework. Uh, uh, framework. That, that's a different, that's a different phenomenon altogether. And the whole purpose of the, of the story of Yitzhak Saram is to integrate the two and show that the political and the social is supposed to be a vehicle of the religious and the intellectual and the metaphysical and all of that that Moshe Rabbeinu represents. You can't divide the two and say, I'll delegate the social political and uh, to somebody else who's a smooth talker, and I'll be the guy who's the divine, uh, the guy who deals with divine issues, and I'm I'm a, a you know a chayal boded in the wilderness, you know, doing my own thing. It, it doesn't it doesn't work like that. That's the avodas zara piece that you were that you were remembering because that's separating it like there's two frameworks. There's a non godly framework where yeah sure you send Aaron in, he'll talk about God and justice and all of that but essentially he's talking about Elohim. He's not talking about Yud meaning he's talking about only the framework of justice and social welfare separate from the divine ideas of Moshe Rabbeinu. The, the divine ideas of Moshe Rabbeinu are something else for the metaphysician, not for the politician. But the whole purpose is to integrate the two. So that's, that, that really makes sense. That, that really connects nicely. Okay, so now Shishi. Okay, so when Moshe goes, he tells he he, he speaks, and, and this is a, we're gonna try to see if what we can make out of the story of the baby, right? Okay, so lech Okay, so the uh, so we, he's given, he goes and asks permission. Can I go back to my family in Egypt and see if they're alive? What does he not tell them? Pretty much anything, right? Doesn't tell him anything. It reminds me of the story of Shaul when Shaul comes back from his whole encounter with Shmuel and he sees his uncle, right? And he's like, oh, what happened? Oh, you saw Shmuel? Yeah, he told us the donkeys were back. He didn't mention, Viet, la melucha, right? The whole thing about the Melucha he didn't say. So, and if you think about it, there's no way to modestly present this to somebody else. Oh, you're not going to believe what happened. The Lord God spoke to me and commanded me to go to Egypt and to redeem his people from bondage. You know, it's like, there's no, first of all, you're putting the cart before the horse because maybe you should deliver first and talk later. You know, you don't want to start talking about uh, this grandiose vision uh, maybe you should just uh, get to work and then uh, the results speak for themselves. You know, let's say he doesn't say anything about it. And, uh, And this, according to the, the way that Ibn Ezra has, this is the easiest way to understand that Hashem had already told Moshe this, right? That you no longer have to fear death. Seemingly then, an interesting thing happened here, which is that whenever he was given the charge to go, to, uh, uh, to, uh, Mitzrayim, uh, that was before he went back to Midian, meaning the, the whole thing of going to redeem the people was given to him, but he wasn't told to go right now, apparently. He was told to wait a little longer because then Hashem says, uh, a little bit later, apparently there might have still been some people who were out to get him. And so he's, now he goes and Hashem says, so he uh, takes the family. Yeah. All right. Uh, by the, the yet I mean you shouldn't be bothered by it you know it's uh, it's not something you should take personally there's a there's a uh, I mean the way that the Chazal the way the Chazal uh, read it is um, is they read it as at different stages of his development spiritually he took upon himself different names just like in the Hilchot Teshuvah, that a person uh, will change their name to say, I'm not the same person who did that sin, right? So Yitro was a person who we know was in a constant state of self, of reinvention. He was constantly seeking the truth and developing himself. And so he evolves from being, uh, you know, from one uh, stage to the next in his... uh, and and each time he has a different identity because his identity was transformed by his um by, that's why Rashi says um, I think it, does he say it here uh, that he had the multiple names Rashi quotes the Chazal that he had seven names what does it mean it means that at each stage of his development and the Chazal explained, like each one signifies a different step in his development along the road that would be saying that they are uh, Yeter and Yitro is not such a big deal Because that's just a dropping of a letter You have many things like that Yishayahu and yeshaya And uh, Ovadia and Ovadya, Same name really Yitro and Yeter is the same name Essentially But Reuel and Chuvav And those other names that he's uh, called Seem to signify different, uh, different identities Meaning that he, that at different points in his life He went by different names Now he says. So Hashem tells him. So then Moshe goes. (laughs) Now it calls it mateha Elohim. Now what did we say the Mate referred to before? It refers to political power, right? The Mate is a sign of political power. The Mate. Look at look at. uh, Who's the ultimate example of that? Achashverosh. sharvita Zahav. Right? He has a staff that signifies his power over life and death. So when that's that staff that signified Moshe's the roe, Moshe is the leader, that staff turns into a snake that then Moshe has to run away from, so he's subordinated instead of being the one subordinating others, it, it symbolizes God's power that Moshe Rabbeinu is representing but it's not a substitute for right? That's the mate. Now he goes, now it's called the Mateh Elohim. I can only assume that this means, and I think many of the Mepharshim take this interpretation, that it means that Moshe knew that, that what the future Makot were going to be. OK, in other words, he knew what the plan was from the beginning, because otherwise Hashem hasn't told him to do any otot yet. He didn't tell him to do any muftim to, to, to uh, Paro yet. He just told him to go ask Paro to let the people go. So where is he getting the idea of doing otot and muftim in front of Paro? Seemingly, he knew that there was going to be some uh, otot and muftim that needed to be uh, performed, and he was responsible for doing it. And, uh, and he knows the whole plan. And it even says that, you know, we had a staff that said the makot on them, whatever. Uh, these are all midrashim. But the idea is that he knew from the beginning what the plan was. Yeah.
4: Is it easier to say what this
0: over? What? No. It, that's what I'm saying. Those, those otot, he never said to do the par'o. Those otot were for the people. So now when he's saying, listen to all the otot I put in your hand, Seemingly, he's talking about the makot of the future that he's going to do in the future. OK, and he's saying reflect on the plan as a totality, which is very interesting because it actually makes a lot of sense, because when you go through and a, a few years ago, when I remember Rabbi Levi was in this class, because I remember talking about it with him, uh, these issues. If you go through Vaira and Bo, he wasn't a rabbi back then. He was just a regular Khazan, regular ordinary layperson right? But he had, but we were in the, I remember we had Vairan Bo, we went through all the Makot, and when you study the Makot, you see there is a very clear progression intellectually and in terms of understanding of the divine from the beginning to the end, that Moshe always says with this you will know that I am Hashem with this you will know that I am Hashem with this you will know that I each one is a new concept being introduced in the makot, so there's a there's a progression and development. So this progression and development, it makes a lot of sense that Moshe would have known from the beginning what it was going to be. Meaning, it wasn't a surprise to him. He saw the total trajectory where things were going, and obviously, at any point in this in the in the process, Paro could have said, "Okay, I get the point. I see it. I'm, I'm a smart man." It says that Paro was pikeachaya. He was very smart. You could say, "I get it. I got it. You can go." But he never, obviously never did that. But that would have always been a possibility. But Moshe has the plan from beginning to end. What is the trajectory of the education that he's going to be doing? And Libo, very interesting. What does he say? V'amartal listen to this. Very important. Say to Paro, Ko Amar Hashem B'ni V'chori Yisrael. My son, my firstborn, is Israel. Now, what does it mean, my firstborn? The Sephorno explains about that. Really, what is the pshat, I think? Simple pshat. That it means that all of humanity are God's children. (laughs) Everyone is God's creation. But my firstborn means the first nation, the first group to know and consciously follow God, is called his bachor. This is my bachor, my firstborn. So, I say to you, release my son so he can serve me. And you will, if you refuse, so you see, that's, that's a proof, that's a clear proof. You don't even need a proof. It's basically saying that Moshe Rabbeinu knew from the beginning what the ultimate, what the whole procedure was going to be first showing ki ani Hashem, then showing that I am Hashem beker Aretz, then showing that I am Hashem that distinguishes between uh, the tzadikim and rishayim, pedut ben ami ben amecha, and then the ultimate of ultimate is makat b'chorot, because that is, I know every individual. That's that the makat b'chorot is every individual is known to God, right? That's because he even knows in a household, who is the b'chorot? Right, so that's the extent of the, the final makam. The old, the ha'shkachar reaches to the individual. Okay, so the but that so he, but what does it mean, beni bechori Israel? So this is one of the foundational concepts in Yitziat Mitzrayim, and something that many 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 mitzvot commemorate because you have pidyon aben about for a bechor, a firstborn, right? And we read it in the tefillin every day, right? Alkin anizovech Lashem and we have Bikurim, first fruits. The idea of the first. What is a Bechor really? Why is a Bechor so remarkable? I think I might have mentioned it to you guys in the past in other contexts. I don't remember. I hate to repeat myself, but so such is the nature of life when you get old and you said a lot of stuff. Right? But the, uh, the Bechor is the first evidence, the first manifestation of my creative ability, my ability to reproduce, right? My ability to reproduce, the first evidence of it. That's why a Bukhor has a unique Kesher with the parents because it was their first child they brought into the world. So the first child who is the, the first product of their ability to be to create, okay, what do you do with that ability to create is going to tell you everything you need to know. Is my ability to create going to be a vehicle for perfecting God's creation? Or is my ability to, in other words, am I going to see it as a capacity that God placed within me to continue the unfolding of the divine plan through my offspring? Or am I going to see the, uh, the creation of life that I'm able to do? as a means to empower myself, to carry on my own legacy, to glorify my name, or to serve me. Like the Rambam says, when a person has children, he shouldn't have children to glorify himself or to serve him. He should have children and say, I hope they become Gidolei Israel. right? That's what the Rambam says. They should say, I hope they become Gidolei Yisrael and right? that's, that's the So that is the whole difference between a child, how do you relate to a Bechor? Because w- when, like, when you have a Bechor, you're not just saying something about that particular child. You're saying something about your ability to create. Just like when you have Bikurim, you're not saying something only about the Bikurim, you bring the first fruits, but you're saying it as I recognize from the very beginning That the fruitfulness and the bounty of the earth, that is the result of my f my invested energy in bringing forth and you know doing my part to make sure that the earth would bear fruit, these fruits are a testimony uh, to God's bounty and are instrumental to God's service, not my own. And that then sets the tone for how you relate to everything that you take from the earth, you see. So the Bacor can either be an aggrandizement, like. Uh, those who are older, this is, which I think only includes me and Moshe, I don't know. We're, we're the oldest, I think. We, we, rem- we know that the Shah had a very hard time having a son. And it was very, I mean, my father told me, I, I, even I'm not that old. Right, my father told me it was a very controversial because the Shah couldn't have a son and therefore didn't have a successor. And therefore, when Reza Shah was born, there were all these rumors that you know, it wasn't really his and it was not, uh, you know, all that because people thought he wasn't able to have a son. And that was like a that was like a pegam. It was like a defect in the uh, in the malchut. So that's exactly an example of the opposite of what the Torah is trying to teach you, right? So what do we do? We have a mitzvah. Huh? Sorry. Sorry.
1: It, seems, it seems like that's what it means to Harold mean that the the Ben the core, is also the one that's gonna replace you. He's gonna be the one carrying carried on your dynasty. So that I I I can't divorce that from the from this message to Harot, no? That ben, that's what it means. This that is what it, it, a message to Haro. The same way that your is so tired, you to your dynasty that this is what Israel is going They're going
0: to carry on my Right. No, you're right. But that's but for every individual person, the Nisayon is: are their children going to be vehicles of their own legacy to give themselves a feeling of eternity? Or are their children really tr- children of Hashem? That were given to them in order to continue the unfolding of God's plan and God's purpose in the world. That's the difference. So, when we have a where, whereas there's Makat Bechorot against the Bechoray Mitzrayim, Bechol ko Kobechorayim Arata, or Bechorach Gaalta, right? Our firstborn were saved, but it says your firstborn Israel was saved, right? Meaning that. We as a total nation are the ones who are the flag bearers of Hashem. Our children, we don't see them as an instrument to our own fantasy of immortality, or that they're going, you know, or our, our servants for our own uh, our own purpose. But we see them as uh, we have an obligation to raise them in a way that they're going to perpetuate the, uh, the, the the wisdom of, of Hashem to the next generation. So we have a mitzvah v'incha. And vishinantam levanecha, right? We have to we have to educate them, we have to train them, um, and and to be servants of God, not of ourselves, right? So that I that's the so he's saying if you don't let my child go, I'm going to kill your child, because that means that you think your le- legacy is more valuable than the legacy of Hakadosh Baruch Hu. Okay, so I'm going to show you that the human legacy, which is a legacy of the e- human ego, basically. Is a uh, you know is a fantasy, and the true legacy is the is the true nachala that we have is the nachala of the Torah, not the nachala of the physical nachala, right? So that's the uh, that's the uh, that's why even in the berkat mazon, al shenchalta lavoteh uh, no eretz chabad tovah chava b'rit v'torah chaim u'mazon it goes together b'rit v'torah is uh, you need to have chaim u'mazon, so it's it's that's the uh, that's the idea of the bechor now and then what do we have? Now I want you guys, now that we belabored this point, you're all going to see right away what I otherwise would have surprised you with or challenged, or, or you, you might have otherwise thought of was some kind of a chidush, but now you're going to see already why it follows naturally from what came before because we belabored the point too much, okay? Because on the surface, this little vignette here about the hotel doesn't, it comes out of nowhere, Right? They were on the way at a hotel and Hashem encountered him and wanted to kill him. Meaning, according to the Pshat, wanted to kill Moshe. Shmuel ben Chofni and the Rambam says, oh no, it could mean that they wanted to kill Eliezer. But okay, the, but the Pshat is that means Moshe. So according again to the pshat, she did the break milah, took the blood and put it on the legs of Moshe and said, you are a bloody chatan, chatan damim, then the plague, whatever it was, departed from him. You are a bloody chatan for Brigmila. <laughs> <laughs> so that that clarifies it. Uh, well, then, well now, that, now that all makes sense. Yeah. Before yeah. we get into the beginning behind it, based on the subject and everything after that first passage, is not it feel
4: better to say that was actually talking about Eliezer because why would Sifra come to the conclusion that she didn't get her attention to Eliezer at this point, other than he was actually in sick?
0: Danger? Right. So obviously somebody was sick, and obviously somebody, and obviously Eliezer needed a break milah, right? Yeah. She figured that out. The only the only piece of the text that doesn't fit with that, I agree, it would be a very tempting interpretation. The only piece of the text that doesn't fit with it is that why doesn't Moshe do the Brimila? Yeah. Right? And why wow, does it come khatan just... oh, damim? Katan right, right. Damim sounds like he's talking about Moshe. Khatan. <laughs> because why? I thought that was a reference to a reference to the action. The, but why is he called a Chatan, I'm saying? It sounds like he's talking about Moshe Rabbeinu. Is like, is like that, like, yeah. Oh, unless you mean that like, he's a, because Moshe Rabbeinu caused it somehow, you I mean? More along the lines of just like, uh, a Chatan is a new the
4: relationship to the wife and a Chatan has a similarity mm-hmm. with a relationship with a wife and a new baby
0: how it's a new person. A new okay, baby. all right. Yeah, so it could be talking about the baby. But can you tell me this? What happened here? What is, what is going on? Because this is str- one of the strangest stories in the entire Torah. So they
4: reached
3: the Maroni. They reached the Maroni. And this Eliezer, who we you not know, age, but he's a baby at this point. Right. We, we have no idea. We're, we're, we're not We to see him. He's, not he's not a, a kid at this point
4: becomes deathly
3: ill with some kind
4: of becomes apparent that he's about to die. Right. That triggers this I don't know why Moshe something in that some action needs to be taken with him, which is a much easier conclusion than seeing something wrong with Moshe and then looking to Eliezer.
0: Right. So the midrashim say that that uh, that Moshe had some kind of sickness that pointed to the idea that it was because of the Brit Milah. That's 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 how they have to explain it.
4: Rabbi, Rabbi, also, Jordan was saying, too, that the wording of okay, seems like it switches to saying or lat that it's, it wasn't talking about that. It would have said, mm-hmm. oh, or or that's, or
0: true, that's true. true. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Let's just, yeah, I mean, let's just say it's a very mysterious story either way, but what what's, what, but the basic idea that there was a brit Mila that needed to be done and that there was going to be, you know, it was uh, someone's life was on the line. Let's leave it at that, right? Either way, what's the relevance of that to anything that's going on up till now? It's like Moshe Rabbein is going down to the Mitzrayim and then all of a sudden there's an emergency, a kid needs a Brit Milah and it and, and if the kid doesn't get a Brit Milah, either the kid or Moshe is gonna die. I mean, where did that come from? There's a zero to do with anything. What you were just about. How so? He needs uh, the same idea we just spoke about the Brit Milah is the best example of
4: at the beginning of your Dedicated Hashem, you're saying this came from God. You're, you're reframing the life of that kid as a vehicle for, for God's will in this world as opposed to your own ambition. Same, same way, prioritizing his own legacy through his son over that Hashem, by not giving a circumcision to your son, you would be conveying that same
0: message. But it just seems so weird that Moshe Rabbeinu, of all people, would not do the most basic mitzvah of giving a brief in life to his son in time. But he was in such a rush to go on the shlichut that he neglected it, right? But how can you go in front of Paro and say, "Bnei B'chori Yisrael," that a child is a is is a vehicle of the uh, of the uh, div- of the will of Hashem, and Hashem created the Jewish people. We have a different view of what a Bechor is than uh, than a uh, than a regular person, and then not do a brit Milan your own son, right? You know, it's connected because of the idea of child. It's connected because of the idea of bini b'chori Yisrael. And if you don't do it, I'm going to kill b'ncha b'chorecha. And then what happens is either Moshe or the child of Moshe almost die right after that. Right? Meaning, Moshe didn't apply that same principle in his own life to his own child that the child needed a brit milah. Because he got caught up in what? In this grander mission of saving the world. In other words, he got caught up in the idea of the political mission that he was on and he neglected his own child's Brit milah, which is exactly what he's criticizing in Paro, that Paro is more concerned about his legacy, about the grand legacy, and the idea of the Bechor in Mitzrayim is carrying on of of the legacy of pride of the parents Instead of having a sense that the child is really belongs to God and has to be consecrated to the service of God. So, so Moshe Rabbeinu's own life wasn't true to that principle because he didn't give a Brit Milan to his son. But there's a further step to it I just want to mention, which is that Brit Milan in particular is very significant because Moshe Rabbeinu is going to start a new era for the Jewish people. The question is, is it superseding the Brit of the past, or is it building upon the Brit of the past? And the Brit Milah is really the foundation of, of being part of Mishpachat HaAvot until now. Even to this day, when we give a Brit Milah, we say, Right? There's a Bacha on the Mitzvah of Brit Milah as one of the tariag Mitzvot given by Moshe Rabbeinu, but there's also a Bacha on being part of the family of Avraham Avinu. So you might've had the thought that the advent of Yitziat Mitzrayim and the Korban Pesach, the Makot and the receiving of the Torah would supersede the Brit Avot. It's a more powerful and transformative kind of a Brit than anything before. A national Brit. It's not personal anymore. It becomes a national identity through the experience of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. So the Brit Milah represents what? The individual's commitment to Kiddushah, basically. I mentioned one time that a Brit Milah is basically that what a Brit Milah and a Korban Pesach actually reflect one another. Because the Brit Milah in the person's life means I transcend the biological in my personal life, meaning there's something more to me than the physical and the instinctual, the reproductive urges. There's more to me than that, right? That's what a Brit Milah is. I'm curbing that to show that there's something higher. And the Korban Pesach is rejecting materialism in the political life, meaning that the Korban Pesach symbolized the idolatry that was the uh, the way of life and the way of thought of the society of Egypt. I'm rejecting that in the Koban Pesach, just like I'm rejecting hedonism in the Brit Milah. What the individual rejects in the Brit Milah is what the society is rejecting, uh, 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 you know, materialism in the uh, in the Koban Pesach. That's why in order to do a Koban Pesach, you have to have a Brit Milah. If you don't have a breed milah, you can't partake. How if you as an individual are not mitukan, how can you, or even if your household isn't, how can you bring a korban pesach into a house where the people haven't advanced past the level? And you see that what does the Tanakh do when the Navi wants to diss Gentiles? What does it call them? Arelim. What is an what are, arelim? It's like the Jewish version version of saying barbarians, meaning people have no control over themselves. People are arelim. They're, they're animals. They're animalistic. Right? That was what they signified them as. So the Brit Milah has to be at the foundation of the, of the Yitziat Mitzrayim. It can't be that a Yitziat Mitzrayim will happen without Brit Milah as the foundation. So Moshe Rabbeinu erred In the beginning, and that's why it says Hashem almost killed him or almost killed his kid because he thought that he could bypass the requirement to have individual kiddushah and the individual responsibility that his son be consecrated properly as a member of the family of Abraham Avinu because he thought that he was going for a nationalistic vision. It was a bigger vision than the vision of Avram Avinu. It was something new that uh, didn't require the old ways anymore. So the idea is that no, he had to do a Brit Milah because the found, because the foundation of everything that's going to happen in Yisrael time presupposes the Brit Avot. It presupposes that we uh, that our families and our relationship with our children is still governed by the principles that were laid down by the Avot, okay? That's why it's so critical at this stage. Just as he's about to rush ahead, you say, wait, he's going for this new nationalistic, and remember, like we said, the uh, the Breshit, transition from Breshit to Shemot is a transition from the individuals of the Breshit to the collective and national identity that emerges in Shemot. But you can't have that collective identity without the individual, Commitment to kedusha in the brit milah, and that's what Moshe Rabbeinu had to learn at the last minute before he went on his mission. Okay, that's the uh, that's it. So that's the story. I mean, as well as well as I think uh, we can understand it, and that's why she said, you know, that's why she saw that the brit milah was necessary. Interesting that Tzipora saw that the brit milah was necessary, but okay, if Moshe was incapacitated, then it makes a lot of sense. If not, then it's just because she saw the baby was sick and she understood that it was they, because they had decided not to give a brit milah. But it would make sense
2: that it would be Moshe's sick because doesn't the obligation of the to to, uh, go to go
0: to Moshe I also feel like the text supports that interpretation more. I agree. But there are some that say it's not. I mean, uh, but I, I agree that it's more it's more compelling to read it that way, I agree. so now so now uh moshe goes he convinces the people to join him and he goes to paro and we're just going to summarize the end right we said we don't want to go through all the psukim or what what's the story because we want to do with some other things so what do you say you want to keep going you want to you want to summarize? Okay. Can you go until the end of the Aliyah and then, then summarize we? Go to the end of the Aliyah? Yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. they also met at Har HaElohim. Okay? So the whole concept of uh the the Brit of Har Sinai is is uh, and the future Avodat Hashem that's going to emerge at Har Sinai is already uh, present even in the because they're going to be the partners that enable that to happen. So since Moshe got the original task at uh, at Har Sinai at Har Chorev with the bush, now Aaron is going to be his partner, so he also meets him there. Moshe Aaron Hashem So it says that he, he explains to Aaron everything he knows. Aaron, and he and Aaron gather all the elders, just like Moshe had asked, Aaron becomes the showman who speaks for him and also does the miracles so they believed in it and they understood that hashem had remembered them and wanted to and, and seen their suffering and they bowed down meaning they bowed down to Hashem in acknowledgement of the fact that because of their crying out he had actually begun mm-hmm. a process of redeeming them from Egyptian bondage that is the uh that's the that the, the point is that the plan goes as it's supposed to but now they come to Paro, and when they come to Paro, <inaudible> to no to Hashem, to Hashem, of course. They're, they're they're acknowledging because remember in the beginning they were but they cried out to God to be saved. So now Hashem actually brought them a, an answer. So they're 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 acknowledging they're acknowledging at this appearance. Uh, the appearance of Moshe and is a fulfillment of their prayer, an answer to their prayer. He heard their prayer that they they cried out from the from the uh, bondage, and so now they come to Paro and they say, "Ko Amar Yisrael, shalach yeah. So says Hashem, the God of Israel, send my send out my people and let them serve me in the midbar. Right now, Paro says a line that uh, basically defines the rest of the story of Yitzyat Mitzrayim. <laughs> Paro basically sets up the curriculum for the rest of Yitzyat Mitzrayim, because he says, "Vayomer Asher Yisrael." First of all, who is this Adonai? Right, he's using Yud Kevavke. Who is this God that uh, I, it was to, uh, that I should listen to him? I never heard of such a concept of God. Lo Yadati Et Hashem, Vegamet Yisrael Lo Ashaleach. What does it mean? I don't recognize this concept of God that you're talking about, and I won't. And even if I did, why would that mean I should send out the Jewish people? Okay, so this basically throws down the gauntlet to Moshe Rabbeinu for all of the rest of the makot, because the makot are going to be designed to show that there is a Hashem, that Hashem does is the master of the universe, and ultimately that Hashem makes a, a, demands of Paro that he has to accede. Okay, but his initial statement of "Mi Hashem Hashem, Hashem, Hashem what do you see from that statement of Paro? Really, you see that. Uh, you see that Moshe didn't just come and make a one-line statement about all. Because that's impossible. Because, because there's a million gods in the world. So what? You never heard of this god. What does that even mean? It's a god of the Jewish people. It's Elohim Israel. Well, why do you have to you have to know a god personally? I mean, there's so many gods at that time. There are a dime a dozen. What, well, it's such a big chidush that you never heard of this god? I mean, it, it, it means that Moshe talked to paro about the idea of god he actually explained to him the idea of yud that that we have a different idea of god we want to celebrate that idea of god it's something special let us go do it this god has commanded us to do this so he says first of all that idea of god is some kind of philosophical mumbo jumbo i never heard that stuff before number one number two Even if you show me that such a God exists, I see no connection between the existence of a timeless, transcendent God and any human action that correlates with it. Because if you're telling me that this God is so transcendent, unlike anything, why would it have any expectations of human beings on Earth? It's a a lot of people, there are a lot of people like that today, too. A lot of scientists say we believe in God in a kind of very, very abstract way, the creator. You know, but we would never say that that creator has expectations of mankind. That's too anthropomorphic. Right. That's the uh, that's what he's saying. He's saying, even if you convince me that this God exists, that doesn't mean that I'm going to abide by what you tell me that God says, because by your own logic, this God is Yud Ke Vavke, He's so transcendent. Why would he have any interest or concern for you? Which is the classic question. Yeah, Which I even guess. David Melech said, shamecha, asher ma enosh you know, why would you, uh, why would you care about, about humankind? That's why I give Paro a lot of credit. In other words, I think Paro, Moshe didn't just show up and say, there's a God and he told us to come. Moshe Rabbeinu came and said, look, I have a new idea. This idea is like, you need to hear this about God. And, and this God is once, has commanded us to worship him in a certain way, to acknowledge him. And, uh, and, and, and this is a revolutionary idea. You don't understand how, how remarkable this idea is. And, uh, and Paro gets the idea. He gets what it is. He just doesn't believe in it. And he says, and even if I do believe in it, it doesn't mean I'm going to let the Jews go. It's a nice idea, which is exactly, by the way, later on in the Makot, when the Khartoumim say, It's ba Elohim he." It's the finger of God. So they don't mean we believe in Hashem. They mean we recognize this is caused by a higher power. We just don't think it has any interest in any particular demands on us. We just think it's a higher power. Which is why after the Khartoumim say, it's by Elohimi, the Makot totally changed. The first series of Makot was with this, you will know that I am Hashem. After that, it was, now you will know that I am Hashem in the midst of the land, meaning that I have a purpose and a design in the world, okay? Because you said you acknowledge that there's a higher power, but you don't think that higher power has any interest in, in human beings. Now I'm going to show you that. That's really what the process of the education of Paro has to be. But that's exactly what the uh, you have to assume that Moshe Rabbeinu explained to him the uniqueness of the idea of God. Otherwise, what does it mean? I never heard of that God before. Well, what, what, does that, what does that mean? There's so many gods. You have to hear of everyone. But it makes sense if he taught him the idea of God that was the radical idea that he had. Yes.
4: It's a fascinating like revolutionary step in the, in the idea of God. God goes from a kind of like a um, no, from like some, a few multiple gods each buying for the immediate personal, very human interests to like a God that has more like a long-term vision for the world. Right. And like, it does, it does a lot in the mind of the when they go from thinking of God as seeking petty, immediate in, as opposed to the jewish god which seeks, seeks a long-term change
0: in the right there's a sense of a purpose to history they always say right there's a destiny there's a purpose there's a plan there's a, there's also the fact that god is that hashem is a universal god relates to all of creation not just to a particular group you know and but but most importantly and most radically i think of all is that god is not able to be related to in any material form that was really the most the iconoclastic nature literally the 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 iconoclastic nature of judaism was the most revolutionary part and it took centuries many 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 centuries the only religion that genuinely had the idea of a metaphysical God after Judaism was Islam, and it got it from Judaism. Even Christianity could not do it. They had to have some image, they had to. Yeah. Uh, to
4: what extent, at this point in time, the messaging of uh, difference between an uh, Elohim and an actual Ukabakhim? Okay. To what extent is that messaging also targeted? To teach B'nai israel, or is it something that they've already gotten and now we are just trying to teach the rest
0: of the world that? well in the beginning when he asks what name should i tell them right that was hashem was telling moshe that he should educate them so they fully understand the idea of Yod-ke-vav-ke. that was the, that was for the bene israel now he's introducing it to paro so it's uh it goes together but the jews like most, like the Ibn Ezra and and the Ralbag, everyone except like Rashi basically um, says that the Makot were also to educate the Jewish people in recognizing Vavke. They were also to solidify their recognition of Yerkevavke that uh, that they would recognize it. So the the education was happening uh, both for the Jews and for the the Goyim, And and the fact is that if you don't listen, if you if you sort of don't include the Midrashim and you don't look at Rashi. So then you would, re- and you read just the Pshutosh Mikra, the first three Makot happened to everybody, including the Jews, because it says that there was blood in all the water and it says there were frogs everywhere, right? So, uh, and Kinim were everywhere. It never says that the Jews didn't have it. That idea only happened with the fourth Makkah. So according to that, then they were also meant to educate the Jews.
4: At this point in time, were they already at a point
0: where they understood that we god can expect something of them? Was that for them? Was I that think a, they're evolving a, towards it. I I can't tell for sure when the moment of truth is, but I don't think that they're all the way there yet. I think that they also go through a process that the the ultimate test of the process is at the end where they have to do Korban Pesach. And if somebody can't do, can't make that leap, then that means that they haven't really internalized it.
4: So what we were saying earlier was that they didn't get there with Abraham
0: Tatyanaq. This level of understanding, this the Israel is also very new and, it's, and it's, I'm trying to get them somewhere else. Right, I mean, according to what the Rambam says, Shevet Levi always had this idea, at least in theory among them. You know, they, they had some, some remnant of this idea among them. but uh, But the rest of the people, they had a tradition about El Shaddai and, and that there was a unique God of Israel, but I don't think that it was developed to this point. I think this these ideas are new to them for the most part. Yes?
2: No, simple question. So it says
0: earlier, oh, I, there, well, there were two? I didn't know there were two. You
2: said earlier, so wasn't, wasn't that they were had some sort of idea of a transcendent God, that they were Calling
0: out to him. right, so, they were crying out based on injustice, so they cried out to Elohim. It says, "Vayibayamim harabimahem, vayamot melachmetzayim vayancho ne'eshal min avodah uh, v'izakub atal shavatam ela Elohim min avodat." It's, uh, it's uh, right before the burning bush. Right before the what? what oh, vayimino I mean, Hashem of Moshev. That was already later. Yeah, that's already when they had Hashem clear. But uh, right now, the idea of justice and Elohim is more uh, is more uh, readily understandable to them than uh, the idea of yud and that's the basis of their uh, concern, of their cry in the beginning. Yeah, yeah.
4: of God that Bene are learning, this idea of like a of a of a deity that's non-physical, that has a long-term vision for the world. Like Rami Sachs talks about how it changed the idea of, of, of humanity from thinking in terms of encyclical like cyclical history to like yeah, versus this, linear.
0: Yeah. Uh, Heard that before yeah start society
4: as a whole start aiming for sort goals. It's amazing that that one idea of God has such an incredible effect on society that the fact that it has such a positive effect on society in and of itself is like proof enough of its truth. You know what I'm saying? It's like the idea that works the best. No, and not, not, not that. It's, it's the idea that works the best.
3: And also in of itself helps the rest of the world.
4: Yeah, yeah, if, that, if you assume that there's a creator to the world. Then the idea that what's the best would necessarily be the idea that the creator inserted into the world as being true. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's like I see the the truth of our conception of God born out in the in the in, in way the result of it. Exactly
0: in the result of it.
4: Yeah, exactly. That's
0: I hear what you're saying. It definitely validates it. I mean, I think you see it beyond even what you're saying because. Um, it's, uh, all of science is really also based on the idea of Hashem. And Hashem uh, and so it's, it's definitely a, without, without the idea of Yechud Hashem western civilization would not really exist and modern life would not exist because we would be living in the dark ages and we wouldn't have a scientific conception of how the world worked, because it was all based on on the idea of well, up until the idea of one God, so if you uh, if you observed contradictory phenomena in the world, you would just assume that they were caused by different forces or different gods. That was the simplest explanation. Once you uh, understand that there's one cause behind it, now you're pushed. You have to reconcile those different things. You have to find the principle that explains and unifies them. And that's why you see that almost every great scientist, at least the great scientists who made the most fundamental discoveries about the universe? All of them were monotheists. Newton, also, even Isaac Newton, wasn't accepted to Trinity College because he didn't believe in the Trinity. He said, They said to him, Do you believe in God? He said, I believe in the God of Maimonides. I don't believe in the Christian God. I believe in the God of Maimonides. So, uh, uh, Isaac Newton, he had a good, He was name was Yitzchak. Yitzchak Newton. He believed in the God of uh, Maimonides. And then also, uh, oh, you know, Einstein God. also was a person who believed in one God and therefore felt compelled to find the unified understanding of the creation because he saw it as coming from one God. He was, he would have loved like, he was almost like a, when you read about Einstein's writings about God, he almost sounds like a little bit of a chassid, a little bit. He has, like, uh, he talks about God as, like, uh, he called God the ancient one. He, would, he, would, he called God the Atikyomin. He called God, like, the ancient one all the time. He had, like, a very, uh, it reminded me almost of, like, you know, in the, uh, he said that when you're studying, he, used, he said that I want to know God's thoughts. Everything else is details. That's what Einstein said. And it just reminds me of like, not that it's the same thing, but like in the Tanya talks about, you know, when you learn halakha, you're learning the thoughts of God about, you know, how to run the world and what the proper thing to do is in different ways. You're, it's like, you're entering into the mind of God. Like that's, that's the way he felt what he was doing when he, uh, when he studied science. Very interesting. That's why he wasn't that interested in the technical calculations. He liked the ideas only. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Sort about uh, the explanation for the of like Yeah. Now, one of our main purposes is to show that God created a world of distinction, so we respect those distinctions. Yeah. And like that is a tacit understanding of the fact that there is order created in the world, and we want to respect that certain order. And then an algorithm of that is to study that order and to try to understand the beauty
0: of it, yeah. of sure. That's it. In fact, the Ra'al Bagh even makes this, the case uh, even more in his whole perush on the Torah. If you ever read the Ra'al Bagh, you'll see that, um, I'm sure you've read some, if you read him through, you'll see he emphasizes again and again and again uh, the, the importance of emphasizing that there is tzura in the Homer, that there's tzura in the Homer. He constantly says to show the existence of tzura, what does the existence of tsua mean? It means existence concept, the existence of concepts, the existence of an order, and an, a, a comprehensible order behind the material, behind the material forms that you see. Tsuwa doesn't mean the material form, it means the material the, uh, the concept that organizes the material. So he's saying that the many of the mitzvot, like the Raoul he says. Is to drive home the idea that there's an order beyond what you see on the surface. There's a there's a conceptual order behind it, and 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 with and that's what leads you to God. Because once you see there's an order and a lawfulness to the creation, so the question is, where did that lawfulness and and intelligibility come from? And then you and, and then leads you to God. Yes. You want to go, you want to move. What, what, which next? Passu, uh, from the,
4: the idea of the three
0: day journey. What in uh, in Gimel,
4: yeah.
0: Uh, by you, Eloya Ivrim Nikalenu, Nele Hana der Sheloshi, everyone is Bahala Shemelo Keno, Penyf Gaino, Badever, or Bahar. Right, okay. Why,
4: Why? <laughs> What is Moshe telling, telling him? Three day journey. We'll come back. It's a three day journey to our goal, and we're not going to come back to team making. What are these statements about? We're going to be stricken with Dever and Kada, coming back to home. What is yeah. What's his, what's his angle
0: here? What's he trying to do? Yeah, it's a good question. He also uh, he also uh, reverts to the idea of the God of the Hebrews called to us, which is what Hashem told him to say, right? That the God of the Hebrews called to us, and he said, and we want to go three days into the desert to serve our God, so nothing bad happens to us. What is he doing in that pasuk, really?
4: Going to go back and start from where he is at this idea of a local god and local people, people we have to please and like build up from there. This is a kind
0: of stage one. Right. This is the way I I yeah, I think it is something like that. I agree because he also says, because he says, um, he says the god of the Hebrews, but then he says Hashem elokeinu, right? So he doesn't drop the Hashem elokeino, but he kind of takes it down a notch. And says, yeah, it's like when you're speaking to somebody and you realize you're speaking in terms that are a little bit too sophisticated, they're, they're a little bit beyond them. So then you say, oh yeah, I'm speaking of the God of the Hebrews, also known as Yud our God, you know? And uh, and so he tries to, uh, and he says the reason, you know, that he's answering him, because he says, well, I don't, I never heard of Hashem. And I won't send out the Jews. So Moshe's answer is Hashem is the concept behind the God of the Hebrews, meaning there's a God of the Hebrews. You know that the Hebrews have a God. He is Hashem. It's the same thing. So don't tell me you didn't hear of the idea. Maybe you didn't have it explained to you, but this is the God. And why, if you recognize that God must you let us out because because if you don't adhere to the will of your God, bad things happen to you. And you can agree with that too. Right? So he's, he's now he's obviously speaking in Paro's language. He's speaking in a language Paro can understand. So he's, he he wants to teach him this idea of yudke babke, but he has to start within the religious framework of an Egyptian. You can't just take the guy and put him into uh, uh, put him into the Moran Nebuchim. You, you you can't just take a, a Jew today and put them into the Moran Nebuchim, right? You always have to start with the basic religious concepts, and then they they mature into more advanced understanding. You don't start teaching a kid. I made this mistake when I was younger. Well, I didn't. It wasn't a mistake, but I my Netanel, you know, used to come to shul from when he was six years old, every day to the minani came. And so whatever I would give over as the Dvar Torah or the shiur, he would hear it always. And you know, he was a precocious kid. He, he still is. I'm saying he was a he was a very attentive. So I once taught about like vaira, And I, I taught the guys in the shiur that I, this was in my Maryland years oh, you know, the Rambam says it's a vision actually, the whole thing is a vision. And I was explaining to them how we could say it's a vision and we've talked about it before. And uh, and so I got a call from his teacher in school. Uh, did you say that the Parashat I guess she must've been teaching it and probably Natana was like, well, my dad said that was just a vision, you know, that wasn't, that didn't really happen. That was just a vision and, and I got a, t- a call from the teacher that, you know, I got in trouble. And so I said, well, you know, it is, I, I directed her. I did what a proper from person would do. I said, oh, I wouldn't recommend her to read the Moran Nebuchim because that would be, that would not be religious. I said, look at the Ramban in the beginning of Parashat Vayera because he talks about it. He talks about that interpretation of the Rambam, and he, he doesn't agree, but, you know, it's, he, he talks about it. You could, you could take a look at it there. So, you know, if you introduce, there are some kids that if you introduce them to ideas that are too advanced, they'll be lost. Some kids will get it. Some kids, it's too much. You start, even some adults, if you start them with an idea that's too advanced, and I'll say, like, for instance, you know, unfortunately, a few weeks ago, we had the, tra- the terrible tragedy, and I gave the shiur about, you know, Hashkacha and human choice and freedom of choice. For some people, that was probably too far out of their comfort zone for them to relate to those ideas. But I, you know, and for some people, it was, it, for some people who struggle with that, I, with those issues, it helped them because it gave them an understanding that they could accept. And for some people, it was too non-religious um, of, a, of a, in their mind, of an understanding to be compatible with their religious sensibilities. And so they couldn't accept it. So that's a good example of a, um, and I knew that it was gonna be that way from the beginning. And I, I, you know, so I, it's not like I was surprised by that. I was doing it for the people who wanted to hear. And I don't, you know, but there are definitely people who are gonna say that's outside my comfort zone and that's not exactly how I think it works. And look, I know myself that there are things that I would have read, let's say in the Rambam, or things that I even teach you guys now that if somebody had taught me 20 years ago, I would have thought they were crazy. Like, how can you just assume that this is not? This doesn't literally mean what it says, or how can you just assume that? You know, this doesn't isn't uh, you know the hashkacha doesn't work the way that it seems to work, and so on. Um, that probably 25 years ago, I would have uh, would have also. Uh, not been able to accept it. So you work within the framework of the person. Par always is being introduced to ideas that he's not ready for. So Moshe takes it down a notch and says, well, you know what a, a local God is, and every people has their God, and ephraim the have their God, and and you know that when a God demands something of you, uh, you have to do it or bad things will happen, and, uh, and therefore we need to do it. But he mentions Hashem Elokeinu. He doesn't drop the idea. And I think the, the master, the master of this is really the Rambam, uh, the master of talking out of two sides of his mouth, or, uh, or is one way of saying it, or, or or basically speaking in the most frum religious language, but saying the ideas he actually thinks are true with, with the best plausible deniability is the Rambam. Because if you read the Mishneh Torah, if you read the Mishneh Torah, you know, if you've read the Moray Nebuchim, exactly what he really means when he says certain halachot. But if you were reading those halachot as a person who doesn't know the Moray you're just like, that's just a very typical religious statement. But his choice of words is so careful that um, that he gets you, he, he, he says to you things that would be really scandalous if you had read them in the Moray Nebuchim. But because they're presented in the way that he does in the Mishneh Torah, you just kind of skate by them, and it doesn't seem that uh, disruptive as it would have otherwise. So that's that's the genius of the Rambam. He was really a master at doing that. He was not a kvad lashon and kvad peh. He knew how to um, take those ideas, and I'm always I, I'm always amazed because I I I, I will read them whenever I see in the Mishneh Torah obvious examples of where the Rambam is taking ideas that people would have you know, been aghast if they read it in the Bar because it's too extreme and it's philosophical uh, pushing the envelope. But when they read it in the Mishneh Torah, nobody seems to notice that he's saying the same thing, but he's saying it in his ideas of hashkacha, like basically what I said in my shiur about hashkacha and, uh, and tragedy is basically the Rambam's position. And, um, and everywhere he talks about hashkacha, you can see that that's his position. And including every time he talks about it in the Mishneh Torah. And yet a from person will read the Mishneh Torah and think the Rambam is just a traditionalist. But there are certain buzzwords in there that are in there that you know why he's saying what he's saying, for sure. So he's great at that. That's what the, that is what that is Moshe Rabbeinu is doing to Paro. He's putting the idea in a language that Paro maybe can understand better. It, doesn't, still, it still doesn't work, right? Paro says... He, huh?
3: I that it seems like an outward lie unless there's something behind
0: the idea of going into a no, no the idea is that um, the Mepharshim explained this and I think there I think it's uh, I think it's right that it, it, the original request was for three days and he wouldn't even let them have that and so therefore he, they were released completely the original request was can you just give us three days? And even that he wouldn't any give
4: Doesn't so Isn't he just saying, according to the actual words, that it'll take us three days to get to the destination? And it's a three day journey from Egypt to uh, Sinai. Where are we get this idea? And I, I'm worried that all these depression of the idea. But doesn't, it doesn't seem like he's framing this in the context of this is the totality of a mass in the
2: world. He's not it's saying it. I'm only going for three. It's saying I'm gonna go for five or But frankly, yeah. said
0: the implication they yeah. asked for a chaglacem, meaning they asked for a holiday off. They asked for a holiday off. Right? And and the uh, and the idea is that Paro wouldn't even allow them to have the holiday off. That's how some of them Farshim explain it. In other words, it's to show you the depth of the evil of Paro, oh, that he wouldn't even allow them to have that, let alone be free. Would slaves be
3: given like holiday breaks back then, meaning maybe it's
0: I guess they didn't have real breaks where they were maybe for a few hours, maybe uh, maybe occasionally for Egyptian holidays or something. I don't know. I know that the uh, American uh, slaves were given occasional holidays like during this time of year. They gave them like uh, some time off. Even, even them.
2: Yeah, the idea we're just discussing about like, giving a an idea or a message across that the person based on where they're holding will, will interpret it their own way. So obviously, we think the same of the way Hazal laid out uh, a lot of the ideas in mean, most of the Mara. Mm-hmm. Midrashim obviously are very layered, depending yeah. on uh, the level of either. Even. Mm-hmm we can say also uh like our approach to halakha everything was structured in a specific way um fair to say yeah so i mean this is like the existential question this is one of the like topics i would have loved to you know get into if we were in israel with you uh, on one of our lunches or dinners you know one of those like macro combos but uh at least i have the same question on Khazal. Needing, uh,
0: well, you still you know, owe me a oh, trip here, oh, so don't think you exempted yourself just from this.
2: We have open-ended tickets. Models.
0: Yeah. Uh,
2: the, the the way the way the you know we'll take me but you can apply it to areas of halakha. Uh, the way things were, what the Agadot and the presented, they they obviously are interpreted on on different levels. But the surface level, where the majority the vast majority of people are going to understand it. Not only is it not necessarily the best way to understand it, leave that aside, but it can be interpreted in a way that's contradictory to the main idea.
0: No, you're absolutely right. That's why the Agadot and the Midrashim weren't meant to be accessible to the Hamonah.
2: I, I would even say the same thing in the Torah. Meaning, yes, we say the Torah something the but... Most people without a nuance are going to see the anthropomorphic representations. Well, that was why,
0: you know, because the way that we read the Torah today is not correct because we read the Torah without the translation. That was why they had the unculus. The unculus would have corrected for that, for the anthropomorphism. And uh, and so, we, uh, you know, we, but we don't do it correctly. We just give the text without any supporting perush. It even says that when Ezra and Nehemiah read the Torah, oh, they read it miforash with explanation, and it says that's talking about the Targum, which means to say that they explain the ideas that would have been misleading. And there's actually a statement in the that's uh, there's, a, there's a there's a there's a statement. Uh, I think it's in the Yerushalmi. Amar Rabbi Yosho Ben Levi kotvei agadot en chelek laolam abah. The people who write down the agadot have no chelek in olam meaning like. The problem is once you put something written down, it's uh, impossible to control how it's understood. And so it could easily be taken out of context and, uh, and, uh, and, and become worse. Like even the Ravad who argues with the Rambam, right? He says, many kamma gedolim v'tovim mime'enu is a famous thing he says when, when the Rambam says someone who believes God is physical is a mean, right? So the Rahavad, the, the, there's a basic machloket between let's say for ikarim, on one hand, Rabbi Yosef Albo and uh, and the Rambam on the other side, whether someone who believes something by mistake, because he's misled, is culpable for the wrong belief. The Rambam says it's a matter of reality. It doesn't matter why you believe God was Zeus. You didn't have the right idea of God. It's like too bad for you. You know, it doesn't matter why. Okay. And, and so, whereas... The uh, Rav Yosef Albo and the Ravad maintain that if a person was misled and came to certain beliefs, it's like an Avera. It's like an Avera. So since it was a Bishogeg, then you'll be okay. Right? That's, that's their idea. So what does the Ravad say? Right? Many people who are greater than the Rambam. Of course, the, 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 the Bet Yosef takes those words out. He's like, how could he say they were greater than the Rambam? He erased that. But he said, believed in it That's what he said. The, the Ra'vad says that. Meaning the Ra'vad knows God is not physical. It's absurd, the idea of God's physical. So he says, Because of Agadot, Shemishabshot et HaDeot, they took the agadot literally, so you know we have feel bad for the miskenim, these poor people that they believe the wrong thing. So it's it's bishogeg, and how can you call a min? A min is somebody that lehachis goes against God. You, you can't call a min. That's the uh, that that's the idea of the rav. Okay, so the um, so, but the, the, the that's but even he's acknowledging the danger of the agadot in the. Uh, know in misleading people with the wrong ideas you're absolutely right i would imply that the way
2: is understood and practiced by the vast majority by the representation of jewish people today is almost a travesty i
0: don't know what to say about that
2: (laughs) i I don't want to say anything that's going too far but from what you were saying we are understanding I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, my we idea. have a lot of work
0: to do. I think in Israel, uh, in Israel, it's comforting to me that the religious Zionist camp is very much in favor of learning Tanakh uh, in a literary pshuto shel mikra way, and has a much more sophisticated approach to midrashim and agadot based on Rav Kook. And even though I don't necessarily agree with a lot of the ideas that they say, and I think that they're missing a lot of the fundamental ideas in that the Rambam would teach, um, it's a more it's a more uh, respectable and less uh, less midrash heavy way of approaching Judaism. But you're right; it's a it's a and and what happened was, if you look at, I'll show you a very simple evolution of Am Yisrael even during my short lifetime, that when I was growing up, we had in every Orthodox synagogue, a chumash called the Hertz chumash, which I'm sure you've seen. It's a blue cover, right? Uh, You know, you have one there, right? Isn't that a Hertz chumash? Yeah, I could see it, right? The Hertz chumash. This is a chumash written by an intellectual scholar, you know? Now, what do you have? You have art scroll, right? Now, art scroll is very nice and a beautiful cover and all that, but the the bottom line is it's a Haredi uh, Ashkenazi Haredi uh, ideology and um, imprinted on every you know the, it's a, it's an apologetic. So every commentary is, is just uh, basically um, pro, it's, it's using the Torah to uh, further a certain view of Judaism that is very particular to the authors of art school. It's not it's not really uh, whereas Hertz was a, was written for a an in, an educated Anglo, whether English or American uh, community that would be interested in, you know, in a broad reading and broad understanding of a Torah. And now we're stuck with art scroll that basically gives you children's fairy tales as the pshats. It's pretty sad. We're going the wrong
4: direction
0: I feel like it's better here. Like I said, they're missing something here too. They're missing something here. The literary the literary people, what, what we have, let's say in our learning, versus what the literary people, we use the tools of the literary uh, approach, but what we have is Yisodei Hadat of the Rambam. And the Yisodei Hadat that the Rambam gave allow us to understand the purpose and the and the methodology of the Torah in trying to educate and redeem our us and the society intellectually. The um, there's a different style to the Rav Kook uh, religious Zionists and to the literary people here that don't have a specific set of yesodot in guiding their reading of the Torah. So that's what they're missing. So like all of our philosophical discussion that we have around Nivuah, around the psukim is not the type of stuff that the literary people would really be in. They wouldn't be doing that so much. Um, But what they do have is is not reading the text through Midrashim, but first understanding the text and then appreciating how the Midrashim oftentimes amplify and, and deepen our understanding of the text. That they definitely have what their fundamental religious values and, and ideas are. I don't always think are aligned with what this sort of stuff that we talk about, but, um, but I like their methods and I like their approach. And I was just telling Benji and Bensi that, you know, I, one of the places I teach at a lot and I would have been teaching there tonight actually, but I, I dumped them for you guys. Um, I, uh, normally I'm, I'm t- I teach at Midrash at Harova, which is a wonderful place, girls uh, seminary. And uh I a guy came over to me the other day, the last time I was there, and he's like, I recognize you from this podcast called uh, Judaism Demystified. He's talking about like Benji and Bensi's podcast. He's like, and you talked about Midrashim. He's like, I've been battling that here so much. He's been there since 1995. He's like, he says, I feel we're in a battle even today, the way they teach midrashim is very simplistic and literal, and they don't teach them really how to approach it. And like, there are some Yechidei segula who are out there, you know, trying to. Uh, yeah, is also, like a very, very like
4: relatively left wing, like uh, seminary. What
0: also- I don't know. The it's it's more. I think here it's considered centrist. I mean, they they do have Gemara for girls, but you you're you can opt out. So like some of the girls don't do it and some do. Um, I feel like here it's considered more centrist based on the schools that the girls went to that they come from. But um, it's what I do find in Israeli schools is that it's very eclectic, meaning that uh, they have like a lot of Hasidut being taught. So just to tell you, like in the past month, I had to teach three classes on Rebbe Nachman, one class on Tanya, you know, all kinds of chassidut classes, because uh, that's what they need me to yeah, sub. Wow, so
1: to you.
0: Whatever, I, yeah. when you're a sub, you don't oh, yeah. get oh, oh, I Oh, us I taught a thing on Rav Kook, uh, once you were on Rav Cook, So like I had like uh, expanded my horizons a little bit, um, being uh, here. But in in Eshel, which is the Sephardic school, there's not much especially Sephardic about what's taught. It's a, it's a good school and a good, I love it and I love the people, but the teachers are not Sephardic mainly. The, women, the female teachers are, but the rabbis who teach, I don't think any of them are Sephardic, maybe one. And, uh, and the, I don't feel like anything especially Sephardic about the methodology. It's just, so, you know, the girls are Sephardic. And so I think we need to step that up a little bit, you know. But that's something uh, we can. That's another project. They would they love it been, if the Mishayi community they took They would.
4: They,
0: they would love the, for the Machi community to take it over. They wouldn't say no. It's it's mainly Syrian dominated. It's mainly Syrians there.
4: Do well, uh, uh, you want to be? Just take a two three minute break. Everyone
3: gets
0: their gemarot until maybe twelve thirty.
2: We'll explore. Fini- finish
0: uh-huh. the after- uh-huh. rest uh-huh. Yeah. Is that what you want to do? It's up to you guys.
2: What do you want breaks? Whatever yeah, you do. Uh, no,
3: uh, just keep uh, a zoom Stay on. Keep the zoom, zoom on. I think then. we'll go get our gemarot and then we'll do 30, 40 minutes until twelve thirty of continuing the agadot from yesterday.
0: Okay, let me just say one closing comment about Shemot just before we end, that Moshe Rabbeinu in his first initiative not only fails, but actually backfires uh, that the work gets worse. And Moshe Rabbeinu is very upset about that and the people turn against Moshe and say, why did you do this to us, right? Why did you cause us to be in a worse position than before? Because Paro uses it, to manipulate them against Moshe makes their lives even worse and blames blames Moshe. And so what's the, uh, why? And then Moshe comes to Hashem and says, Right? Actually, it's, I don't want to insult uh, the, the kriya. Right? Why did you send me? Right? So what is the point? And, and he says, he says, from the time I came to Paro, you, uh, you didn't save that. So Hashem says, you're going to see what I'm going to do to Paro Because with a strong hand, I'm going to get them out. And so what is the point? Moshe Rabbeinu fails in his first initiative. And now from everything that we learned up till now, we know that makes perfect sense. He had to fail. Why did he have to fail? Because if he had come in and talked Paro into letting the Jews out on the first meeting, that would have been Moshe Rabbeinu is our hero. Moshe Rabbeinu is our savior. Moshe Rabbeinu has the golden tongue. He was able to convince Paro to release the Jews from bondage on the spot. What an amazing thing. Moshe Rabbeinu is the savior. And that can't be the case. It has to be You will see asher e'eseh le'far'o. You're going to see what I will do to par'o. That's Hashem talking, that Hashem is the go'el. Hashem is going to be the one. It's not going to be accomplished through Moshe Rabbeinu's intervention. It's going to be accomplished by Hashem's intervention because Hashem is the go'el of Moshe, not Moshe. And so the failure was necessary to show that Moshe is not able to do it, that only Hashem is really the one able to do it, And I think that's a key thing. I'm going to stop the recording of this since we're changing topics anyway. I don't have to turn off the Zoom, but I can stop the recording.